What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich, and if this is the first time you're checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second, a bit about what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series with where we focus on conversations with entrepreneurs, content creators, and just awesome folks that are on our radar to discuss the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they use to run their business, create their content, and more importantly, be more productive. Now, when it comes to the toys aspect of the podcast, we don't just relegate it to the usual things you think of when it comes to toys, action figures, etc. Everyone's definition of toys is different. So from the individual that collects guitar picks to knives, swords, those are some people's favorite toys. And because of that, we embrace the toys definition here in a more general sense. One of the reasons we like to do this is because it allows us to connect with our guests on a more personal level and just get to know them a little better. Plus, it breaks up a lot of the business and entrepreneurship talk that is a big part of this podcast. Now, with that little intro out of the way, I just want to get into some housekeeping and turn it over to this week's guest. Uh, first off, I want to thank everybody who reached out with so many kind words for um, my appearance on the Tom Marino show. Uh, Tom is a is an, a great host, and we look forward to working with him in the future on some projects. Don't want to divulge too much yet, but we definitely are going to be working on something with Tom and a few other folks as well, including some that have been guests on previous episodes of Toys and Tech of the Trade. Uh, while we are on the subject of previous guests, I do want to um, share something. It's a little, it's a little sad, obviously, but um, one of our past guests, James Lopez, uh, the organizer, the leader of Fatherhood is Lit and the Fatherhood is Lit movement, um, recently experienced some terrible medical hardships. Uh, he was in a coma after having some routine surgery, and um, you know he's definitely. Uh, not doing well, but on the mend, it's, uh, it's a little touch and go right now. And, um, you know, James has been a, a, a great friend of the show. I know James from way back, going back to the days of, um, some of the other things and projects that we worked on. And the thing about it is that he, um, you know, he always was looking to level up, always looking to create, and more importantly, went out of his way to do things for fathers um, and create activities and events and things for, for fathers and their children to be involved in and to hear that he's going through such a terrible hardship at this time as, as the father to, to three sons. It's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And I wanted to share it with you, number one, because I consider James a very good friend, but number two just a reminder, man, that you're here one minute and things could take a turn and to really appreciate uh, the time you have, whether it's as a creator or as a family, as a family person, uh, whether it's a mother or a father or a sibling, just enjoy those moments because they can be they can be gone in an instant. Um, I am going to share in the show notes for this episode the link to James GoFundMe. Um, he's going to require a lot of medical care. I believe he's being moved to a rehabilitation facility and it is super expensive. Um, and any, any little bit helps. And as, like I said, as somebody who's, who's a father and, um, someone who 
is raising and taking care of different people. I truly understand what it's like when, when the leader of your household definitely is not able to function at the highest level. Uh, we're pulling for you, James. We wish you nothing but the best. And as I said, we will include links to the GoFundMe as well as the link to uh, James's story in the show notes for this episode. And again, if you'd like to help or just want to send some kind words of encouragement, you know, let's let's definitely do that if if possible. Again, this isn't some crazy call to action forcing people to do it, but as a, as a friend of the show, as a personal friend of mine, as a, as a fellow father. Um, I feel for his family and I want to try and do as much as I can to give a signal boost to what's going on with him. So as I said, be on the lookout for that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, definitely not um, the, the highest note I wanted to start this show with, but I really wanted to get that out there. It's, um, it's something that's personal to me. And as I said, uh, for those of us that have children and want to be in our children's lives we could never we could never imagine something like this happening to us but it happens something so routine can can turn into something so serious so again take a look at the at the link for his story as well as the gofundme and if you could do something that's that's awesome and i think every little bit helps at this point so i uh, just wanted to share that i did want to mention i know some folks have been reaching out about working with us in terms of podcast production, et cetera. Uh, we are definitely always looking to add new shows to the podcast network, and we're always looking to work with uh, production clients as well. Not every person we work with has a show on the network and just want to use our production services. So please feel free to reach out via any of our social media accounts, including the RageWorks podcast network, Instagram, that is slowly picking up steam and feel free to reach out and we'll do our best to help you with that out of the way let me turn it over to this week's guest so you can learn about the toys and tech of their trade as well as the awesome awesome project that they are working on enjoy the conversation folks My guest for this week's episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade is Vince Romanen CEO of Gradient Gradient is a company that has burst onto the scene with a brand new approach to something that many of us, especially on the East Coast right now, need desperately, and that is air conditioning. Their brand new hybrid cooling and heating system is not only just a beautiful piece of tech to look at, but it's going to change the game in terms of home comfort. My conversation with Vincent is going to discuss not only the work that he's doing with Gradient, but also a bit of his backstory as well. So without any further ado, what's going on, Vince? Thanks for taking the time to come by the podcast and share your story. Hey, Rich. How you doing? Happy to be here. Looking forward to a conversation. So, you know, interestingly enough, when we were introduced to your company and the work you were doing, we, we started doing our research and our prep. And strangely enough, you have a very interesting career. You worked for GE. You also uh, studied, uh, you were a research engineer, you did a lot of research work, and then you became CEO in 2017. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because I feel that you go from college student researcher and all of a sudden you're a CEO. So talk me a little bit through that journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, 
I would love to say I grew up knowing I, knowing I wanted to be a CEO, but that's definitely not the case. I, <laughs> I often describe myself as a thermo nerd. Uh, and so I think it started, you know, I was a kid in Ohio, you know, playing games in the backyard. I liked building rockets, playing with engines, things like that. And so I kind of just grew up liking building things and got into engineering specifically focused around things involving thermo, thermodynamics, engines, turbines, et cetera. That's how I ended up working at GE Aviation. I was working on aircraft engines. uh, And that's how I ended up going to grad school to study turbines for power generation. Um, And after that, I was at a, I jumped around to a couple places, usually in solar. I always wanted to do something focused on climate. And uh, I was at a research lab, a really creative place out here in California called Other Lab that does a lot of tinkering, building, got a tiny prototype shop where people can build things. And um, we were doing a lot of kind of high level data analysis of where energy flows were happening in the U.S. and what, you know, problems and gaps were. Um, And that's where I was a research engineer working on a lot of the early stage uh, tech that they were building. Um, And we were like, wow, buildings are a huge part of our carbon footprint. Um, And this was in probably 2015 when we were starting to do this analysis. Um, Electric cars were really at the forefront then. We were seeing tons of momentum in electric cars when we still do. Same with solar and wind. Solar and wind were coming down in prices crazy fast. Uh, but we were like, no one's really talking about the fact that we don't, we, we can't just do those two things. It's not enough. We also need to figure out how to get carbon emissions from buildings to zero. Um, and so that that's kind of where we first saw this gap and said, like, somebody's got to do this. And uh, uh, obviously, I drew the short straw <laughs> and started the company to try and do something about it. Okay, so I, I want to dig a little deeper, obviously. You know, talking about being a kid and you were always tinkering. Um, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I don't know. I think I think both my parents were mechanical engineers. Okay, and they were like uh, they, they just like designing and building things. And so I think that I had a couple uncles who were engineers too. My older brother went to school for engineering, and it, it was just kind of obvious. I thought about doing some other things. I was like, I you know. Loved cooking, could be a chef. And, and my dad's kind of like, uh, here's how much money you make as a chef. And here's how much money you make as an engineer. <laughs> and uh, also my uncle was one of my inspirations because he was uh, also an engineer, but a little bit more leaning mad scientist. And so we would like build rockets and launch them. And he'd tell me about, you know, space exploration and stuff. And, and uh, kind of got me excited for some of the things you could do with engineering. It's a, It's amazing how those key moments can kind of lay the foundation and the brickwork for, for your future journey. Like here you are building rockets. You you have a family with many engineers and here you are now working in a field and doing something that is pretty much going to revolutionize the way that people approach keeping their homes cool. I mean, one of the biggest things I remember growing up, especially back in the eighties was when you would get an air conditioner, you'd have to get a big block of ice and Mm. put the block of ice inside the air conditioner. (laughs) And, um, you know, we're talking 1986, 85, 86 at the time. And, um, you know, obviously we have come a long, long way, but there's still, um, a a kind of, a the technology is still a little slow, but you know, your company gradient is looking to change that. So, Let's let's kind of unpack that a little bit and 
talk about how you started that company and what made you want to venture into the, the, the heating and cooling space of all the spaces that need work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned a block of ice because, and the fact that air conditioning is slow, because, you know, when you look at the history of how we've made our buildings comfortable, we've had heating for a really long time. Right. Like it's been a million years since we invented fire and we've used that to heat our, keep ourselves comfortable since then. But it's only been a couple hundred years since we've been able to make something cold. And before we had the tech to do that, you literally, people literally had to buy ice from somewhere that was cold. Yep. Um, and so in the, I think 1850s is when it first started, ha- uh, when we first invented the machine to actually make something cold. And in that time, there's a huge industry of people ch- carving giant chunks of ice out of frozen lakes and rivers in the north and shipping them across the world. Um, and so it's really just a much more recent tech than heating. And uh, it's also super important. So uh, I grew up in Ohio where you absolutely needed it. It was much more hot and humid. Now I'm in California where you really don't. And, and it depends on the region, but with, with global warming, more and more people need it. And around the time when we, we realized that building emissions were high, we also realized that we needed to be using more air conditioning because there were so many people who didn't have access to it, to whom it would be very, very important to their lives, to their productivity, to their health, to have access to it. Um, and so it wasn't just that we saw the problem of, you know, we need new technology here, we need to decarbonize, but we also saw we, there are people who needed these services who couldn't get them today, and we wanted to make sure that they could get them. I think that it's amazing that, you, you know, and and I joke about this a lot with, with my peers and, and people I know about how things like that, like air conditioning, clean water, uh, you know, being able to shelter, et cetera. It's like you think like, hey, we're supposed to have these things, but. The, the reality of it is in a lot of areas, that is an extremely, extremely short supply. Yeah. yeah. Now, looking, looking at that, I want to kind of address your, your trajectory, obviously going, working from other lab, starting this company. Let, you know, talk me through those initial growing pains of when you started the company back in 2017. Yeah. So we, um, we were building prototypes in other lab. We kind of had, a, a good idea of the problem statement. Um, and we, we dug a little bit deeper into why these products today were so bad for the environment and what needed to happen for them to be sustainable, scalable, and accessible to everyone. Uh, and we, we noticed a couple of things. First of all, we needed electric heating. Right now, most homes still use natural gas or fuel oil or some other fossil fuel to burn to heat the home. Correct. Um, and we have to switch to heat pumps. Um, a lot of people don't know what heat pumps are. That's been changing really quickly in the last year and a half, which is which is great. When we started, we were like, we're going to make heat pumps. And everyone was like, what's a heat pump? Uh, still, not a lot of people know, but it's changing. But a heat pump is is basically the same equipment as what's in an air conditioner. You just have a valve inside of it that lets it switch direction. So it's an air conditioner in the summer. And then in winter, it provides heating. Gotcha. Um, and so we said, everyone needs a heat pump. This is the better, this is a much cleaner way to provide heating than natural gas. That was the first thing. Second thing we saw is the refrigerants that we use in these systems are today super strong global warming forcers. 
and we need to phase them out and use better refrigerants. Um, and we didn't see a lot of tech looking forward that could scalably do that. And so that was kind of the next step. We're like, all right, here's the problem. And then we said the solution has to be something that looks like we need to really quickly deploy electric heat pumps that use better refrigerants. Now the thing, uh, oh, go ahead. <clears throat> so yeah, that was the that was kind of the research phase, and we started writing grants. Basically, was was our first step. Other lab does a lot of government funded research, usually for Department of Energy. Um, and at that at that point, it was a little bit too early to really raise venture capital money. And so we we looked at DOE, we looked at a bunch of other government agencies, uh, and eventually we got our first bite of outside support via a program called. At the time, it was called Cyclotron Road. Now it's called Activate. Um, and it's basically a government-sponsored fellowship for tech-focused entrepreneurs to help get their idea off the ground. It was based at Berkeley National Laboratory. Um, and it gave us a super small amount of money, but a big network, uh, tons of great support and mentors, uh, other founders to help, you know, bounce ideas off of and, and, and help you through struggles. And that was kind of the first thing that like led us to incorporate as a company and really, really get off the ground. Now, I, obviously there's, there's the accumulation of grants, which you folks got over, over $9 million, I believe was the, the number yeah. I had seen. And then later on another 13 million in venture funding. Uh, talk me, talk me through the, the process of the venture side of things. Because again, here you have this revolutionary idea that the understanding, the concept, all of it is sound because again, it is solving a pain point that is prevalent mm -hmm. across the world. How does, how does that work when you were looking for venture funding? Because I, and, and I want to share this with our listeners because a lot of them are entrepreneurs, definitely. Uh, people that have their own products, their own services that are in that space that are looking to take that next step. Talk me through some of those stumbles that you experienced along the way and then getting your first uh, your first bite of venture funding. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I had to learn, this was true in my experience. I think it's true in a lot of people's experiences that you, you, you're going to get a lot of no's before you get that one yes that matters. Yep. Uh, you know, I did not go to school to learn how to pitch to VCs or to raise money to build a company, right? I was a thermodynamicist. I knew kind of how these machines worked, how we needed to build them, how we needed to scale them. And uh, yeah, there's no book. There's no like, well, there's a couple books, but like none of them are super, there's, there's not like one source that can help you. So like right. you call your friends, you call your founder friends, you call your mentors, and you just try and fail and iterate over and over and over again. Um, and at the time, there was not a lot of VC funds who wanted to be focused in climate. This was probably in, it was, it was 2017 when we won this first uh, piece of external government support. And then it was 2018 when we got our first venture check. And at that time, it was, it was, there just weren't as many venture funds that were focused on climate alone. And at that time, no one really knew that buildings and refrigerants and heat pumps were, were an important climate challenge. Really? Um, and the first check we got was by one of the former co-founders of Nest, Matt Rogers. All right. 
And so it, you can, you can chalk it up to luck, but it's really persistence and like finding someone who like understands your vision and understanding how to pitch your vision to people who don't. And obviously Matt had seen the HVAC industry. He understands better than anyone that if you build a product that actually makes someone experience better, you can scale it way faster. And that was kind of our pitch at the time. We said, look, people are really deeply unsatisfied with current products. And so if we're going to scale this technology that's important to the climate, we have to be focused on how we can do it in a way that makes people's day-to-day lives better. Um, He got that right away. Um, And uh, yeah, that was the first step. Like I said, it took took a lot of no's to get there. And you just got to learn from those no's. You got to iterate. And you have to, you know, have conviction that what you're doing is the right thing and keep pushing. Going back to your, to your, your history of getting the no's and, and that first yes. Um, talk me through the first yes that you got in, in terms of, um, getting, uh, on the government side. On the government side? Yeah. Um, the first, first grant we got, well, when we talk about Activate and Cyclotron Road, which is a great program, especially if you're, you know, a really tech-focused founder, it's if it doesn't feel like a government program because Activate is a separate organization, but it is is tied to some government funding. And then the first government grant we got was from the Department of Energy's SBIR program. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I already forget what SBIR stands for: Small Business Something Research Innovation Research. Uh, it's a great program, and of all the government grants we run, it, I, I think it's one of the most effectively run grant programs. And it was for it was very very technology focused, more than company or product focused. And so we had a specific type of heat exchanger that we thought could really help us do, build these systems cheaper and more effectively. Um, and we won that grant, and it helped us build out some of the tech that that we were looking into scaling. And it's it was a small grant; it was 150k, but that program is a great program. It, it also kind of like, it was enough money to get us through the first stages and apply to other grants that supported that tech. So a lot of times we'll have a grant that like, we have this to build up the core tech. We got another grant to build the system around it. We had another grant to test deployments. And so they kind of, they kind of help each other and support each other. Also, they, they kind of help and support VC funding because often VC funding doesn't want to doesn't want to fund the research stage of a technology. Right. And they often don't want to be doing the deep technical diligence that a grant would do. And so when they see you have grants, they kind of understand like, okay, this technology piece has been vetted by an agency that has a lot of experience here. We don't have to worry about that. We're going to focus on the business piece. And I think that that's a very important, that that piece of information you just shared is very important because a lot of times, and you can you can confirm this or or dispute it. Of course, uh, a lot of companies before they make that investment, they want to see who else has skin in the game because mm-hmm. then they understand if there's a viable product. Because I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been discussed in in the last five or so years that it sounds wonderful on paper. Sometimes there's a there's possibly a, a, a test model or a, or a beta unit, but then it just never sees market. But now when you talk about the government having investment, there being a tangible product, it makes that aspect of of generating capital easier, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Now, and go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I think a lot about when, what, like, what's the government's role in scaling technology, and what's the private sector's role, and and we're a unique case, obviously, but like we've really 
I don't know if it's if it's luck or vision, but like we 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 showed up at a time where no one was talking about refrigerants and heat pumps, except for kind of a couple of VCs who are at the forefront of how we're going to decarbonize buildings, and a couple of government agencies who are at the forefront of like, you know, how are we going to get this sector to reduce their emissions and improve people's lives? Um, and it really worked out well for us. Like, I don't think we could have done this on venture capital funding alone, and I don't think we could have done this on government grant funding alone. And so plenty of, there's plenty of examples of where government grant funding has not focused on the right thing. But for us, I think that they both worked together really well. Well, I think a big focus now, especially has been that, uh, the government and more people are just becoming aware of the fact that it's like, listen, you know, there's the, the, the earth is getting hotter, you know, summers mm-hmm. are getting more brutal. Winters are getting more brutal and you need to have the systems in place to be ready to adapt to those types of change whether people are going to you know dismiss climate change or not the fact of the matter is that winter is winter and summer is summer and if you don't have the right things to get through it it's going to be very 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 unbearable i mean as as someone who owns a home i remember when my boiler broke and of course it breaks right in the middle of winter and yep. you, you you're like how am i going to keep the house warm the pipes are going to freeze etc and it's that insane insane struggle to try to juggle the basic necessity of warmth while also trying to make sure that you can find something that can give your home warmth and not destroy your wallet at the same time it's a it's a very big disconnect that a lot of people they talk about it but they don't talk about it actively enough and that's one thing i have to commend your your company for doing you came out with something that while while it is more money than the quote unquote traditional air conditioner. It's also serving more than one purpose. Yeah. And, and we don't want, we're not going to stop here either. Um, we kind of see this as one important product. It is key to the company as our flagship launch product, but it's going to help us scale to other price points, other sectors, etc. And we built the company from the start to be, you know, focused on exactly what you said, which is, like we have to solve the problem at the source, which is reducing emissions, but we also have to build resiliency. We have to help, you know, communities that are vulnerable to the worst effects of climate change to be able to protect themselves and be still as like comfortable and healthy and productive as possible. And a, a lot of the government work too around climate change now is starting to focus more on resiliency of communities. Like how do we make sure that when, you know, old boiler systems go down that we can still keep people comfortable how can we make sure that, you know, we don't have huge health effects associated with heat waves? Um, and so I, I really think that if we're going to solve this problem, you, you've got to be looking at, at both sides of it. Absolutely. I think I think when you boil it down to the economics of it and and I can I can vouch for that in New York, especially it's, you know, when you go into apartment buildings or projects, et cetera, it's they're at the mercy of of, you know, the New York City Housing Authority. And if they decide hey, it's not cold enough to turn on the heat yet, but it's cold, you know, it's cold for the elderly yeah. or it's cold for for people with pre-existing health conditions. Uh, you know, units like what you're offering can at least provide a bit of a, you know, provide an equalizer in the sense that, hey, they don't want to cut the heat on right away here. You can use our our product and you'll be able to warm your home and be comfortable until they decide to start using gas heat. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a it's a it's a scary thing because, again, people are like, oh, you know, just go and buy a heater, just go and buy an air conditioner. And again, going back to the economics of it, there's there's 
situations where that's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, you know, kind of dig into your, your day to day as a, as a CEO. And I want to kind of, uh, get an understanding of, of how you operate because that's one of the things we discuss on this podcast. So talk me, talk me through a, a, a typical day for you, you know, in terms of just working with the company and getting products like this to market. Yeah. It's funny. I, I feel like I haven't had, you know, any quarter or any half year that's been the same, uh, uh, you know, since the start of the company. Of course. Uh, we found it and, and, uh, I was, I was, when we found it, I was a research engineer. I was really focused on writing grants, which are very technical documents, like conducting tests, writing results, built our first really small skeleton crew of a team after we won our first grants. And then I, I started focusing more on fundraising and then I was, you know, trying to uh, understand, uh, I guess before fundraising, really, it was talking to customers and understanding how we wanted to approach the market first. And so after being a researcher, my day-to-day was really honestly just calling a lot of potential customers in different potential target segments. Um, and then it was fundraising. Uh, when you're fundraising, it, it feels like your only job. You're, you know, yeah. you're, you're iterating on the story. You're getting advice from, from people. You're testing hypotheses with, with certain people. Be like, Hey, would this work? You know, you, you build a hypothesis and you call a customer to see if it makes sense. Um, and then once you finally kind of find that support that you think you're, is going to be the right team to work with, it takes a lot of time to get that deal done. And so fundraising can be a full-time job. Um, and then you finish fundraising and you go back to running the company and it's a lot of team building, right? a lot of understanding where the market's going and what the company needs to do to be successful and making sure that the team is, is structured to succeed, has the resources they need to succeed and has really clear goals on, on exactly what's important, uh, and what's not. And that part's really hard because... A uh, company like us, we're full of a, a lot of engineers, a lot of really smart technical people, a lot of really smart business and marketing people. And uh, that means that we're excited about a lot of things and that we see a lot of opportunity in this space. But right. like, you have to do the one, the minimum one thing right. You can't get distracted. And a lot of my day-to-day in between fundraising is focused on that, saying, this is our mission as a company and where we want to go and to accomplish that. This is the specific next step. We got to be focused on this thing. And then it's back to fundraising again. Um, and so I would say if there's maybe three themes that kind of permeate my day to day, it is um, setting the vision for the company and uh, setting the clear goals that the team needs to ec- ec- execute on, uh, building the team, right? Making sure I'm bringing in the right people um, and then fundraising. How are you, how are you determining your, your ideal? Well, let me rephrase that. How are you? Uh, curating the, the, the baseline for the customer acquisition. In other words, you, you know, you said you're calling and you're talking to potential customers. How are you gathering that, that intelligence to be able to do that? And what are you looking for when you have these conversations with customers? Yeah, I think that this is one of these things. And look, this is the first time I had to learn all of this when we did it for this Absolutely. company. Um, you know, having a background as an engineer. And there's like, there's like a, a school of like technical people who are learning to understand how to focus on the customer. It's run by NSF. It's called i Have you heard of this? I have not. Yeah, it's called i Uh 
it's a little bit cheesy of a program, but it's basically like a bunch of engineers and scientists and it's beating into their heads. Uh, like this is how you focus on the customer. And we did a short, we didn't do the full program. We did like a mini course of it. And um, it was my first education in this. And it's really like learning how to ask open-ended questions of your customer. It, they talk a lot about the mom test. Like if you call your mom and ask her what she thinks of something you did, she's obviously going to tell you she loves it because like she, you know, cares about you as a person. And it's, it's how do you design questions where people aren't going to like default to this like need to say something positive and you're really going to dig out of them what their real concerns are. Right. And then the last part of it is just that like, you know, we talked to an HVAC installer and they would be like, yeah, I really like these systems because they're familiar to me and I know I can get a replacement part. And if it was something new, I might try it out, but I might be worried about parts. And we were talking about building installers and they'd be like, yeah, it'd be nice to have lower energy bills. And if I was sure it would be reliable, I would do that. And then we talked to, uh, you know, a long list of other segments. And then we got to consumers who had window ACs. And it was this customer that was like, I would like, I want something different. I want to throw this thing away. I want my window back. I hate this so much. I need something different. And there's nothing out there. And they like almost literally grab me by the shoulders and were like, fix this problem for me. And it's it's kind of that, right? Like you don't know what it is until you hear someone who are like, wow, this person really wants a solution. They want it yesterday. And they've got nothing else out there. And we're like, this is the best first market for us. This, this customer is going to be super excited. They don't have anything else out there that can solve this problem for them. Uh, and, um, you know, part by luck and part by design, the solution that we were going to build for that first customer was also kind of the core of technology that we wanted to scale into all of these other segments. And so we found that customer. We were like, this is the best first market. This customer is excited. They have nothing else. They really want a solution. And it's going to be a great launch pad market for the company. That's a, that's a, that's a heck of a way to, to break that down. And what I, what I gather from it and what I, what I like to hear is the fact that you're still learning along the way and you continue to reinforce the fact that you're like, listen, I'm an engineer. I'm not a salesperson. And I kind of wanted to, you know, take some information out of that as well in the sense that as you were learning these facets of of growing the company where were you drawing inspiration from for your sales tactics or how were you approaching things were there mentors or people you were looking at that you were kind of pulling ideas from always yeah um the other lab community has a lot of of uh founders a lot of them also were previously engineers or still engineers <laughs> you know however you want to put it and um they've got a pretty big community of people there um and the same with the activate community there there's a big network of of uh mentors uh founders vcs etc and so it took a lot of a lot, lot of iteration so i think that probably going back to nest is is still a great example. Um, we worked with the head of design for Nest. Uh, his name's Rocky Jacob, former head of design. Um, he did our industrial design and he really helped me think through how we were going to build a product that was really focused on the customer experience, focused on good design. Um, they say that good industrial design after you see it is, is kind of obvious. And I kind of feel that way about our system. Like the, the idea that you would have a shelf in front of your window. We started off saying, how do we make this air conditioner your window, which people clearly hate, look better. 
yep. we kind of realized people don't want the air conditioner to look better. They want, they want to look out their window. They want the natural light. They want the view. And so we designed our system to focus on that and not on the design of the system itself. We put a shelf on, on top of it to make sure that we could, you know, people could add plants or, you know, whatever else they wanted to, to kind of get more use out of their window and not less. Um, and you also do a lot of back and forth of, of testing this with customers. And so we, we, we talked to the Nest folks about how they did that. We called a lot of other companies to see how they did that. And, you know, we would show different renders to customers. Uh, we would test different prototypes with customers. Uh, a lot of our testing was on the install process. Uh, how you get this into a window, it's, it's important for any AC system. It's important because if you need a professional to install it, it's going to be expensive. And uh, it's important because window ACs are really annoying to install by the user themselves and occasionally dangerous. Um, and so we did a lot of, a lot of uh, iteration and testing on that as well. Yeah, I think I remember when Nest first burst on the scene, one of the things that definitely got my attention was the simplicity of the design and the fact that anyone can easily understand how to operate it. And to your point, the, the visual appeal of it on, on a wall just definitely resonated with me and to see what you're doing with gradient and answering that while also keeping it aesthetically pleasing is, is a nice, is a nice compromise because I think a lot of times exactly to your point, one of the one of the most agitating things for many people, especially if they are limited with windows, is up. Oh, got to put the AC in. Oh, got to take the AC out. Put it in a garage, or or bag it up and put it in a closet, and deal with everything that comes with that, and and the labors that are there. But in this case, you're integrating it into the the look of the home as a whole, so that you can have plants and other things there, and more importantly, the function of the unit isn't gonna jeopardize the usage of that shelf space or that table space above the unit. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the the thing I was interested in obviously is in terms of the the cost of the unit and looking at what's currently on the market. Was that a uh did you always have a set a set price point in mind in terms of how you wanted to um, market this product because as we were saying before we started recording it's one of those things where it's the pendulum shifts uh the pendulum swings to you know decently cost air air units uh window units that are you know decent in price but limited in functionality because they're only based on the one season and then there's the flip side of it where you're looking at Something that's going to run you, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $15,000 if you want to do various areas of your home. Was that something that you researched heavily? Yeah, it was. We, we spent a lot of time on this. And, and you know, our, our goal as a company has always been, we say our mission is to cool the world. Uh, we know that there are a lot of people who need access to air conditioning. It's expected that about 4 billion more air conditioners are going to be on the planet by 2050. That's almost a tripling of the number that's on the planet today. And that's equivalent to like one in two of us on the planet getting our first air conditioner. And then obviously we've got to scale them up by three times while also getting their emissions down. And so we said, all right, if we're going to do this, where do we start? And we made the decision that it made the most sense to start at the top of the market at a higher price point unit 
and then scale down because it matches our manufacturing ramp. Uh, it, it basically lets us build out the high tech system first and then scale it to the, the most economical mass producible system after that. Um, it's kind of like building a Tesla Roadster first to build out the tech to get to your, you know, Model S and Model 3. Um, and so when we looked at the market, we looked at what people were paying for and we saw that there's this, this big gap between, you know, uh, uh, window AC, which might cost 300 bucks per room. Right. And a ductless system that's professionally installed, which costs between 3000 and 9,000 per room. And when you look more broadly that in terms of cost per capacity or cost per BTU, anything that's professionally installed is, is kind of in the same category of a ductless mini split. It's, it's, it's several thousand dollars per room because you need to pay a lot of professional labor. And so we said there's, there looks to be a, a big opening in the market to be way cheaper than a ductless, more expensive than a window AC. Um, look for people who want ductless systems, who want year-round heating plus cooling, uh, who want the system to look nice, uh, launch our flagship product there, and then scale the tech to be able to get to lower price systems and eventually also international markets. Now, the interesting thing about that, and and I wanted to to reference this when you were when you were doing the research for the for the pricing and determining the ideal um style of the unit one of the things that jumped out to me was the fact that you really went out of your way especially in a lot of the in a lot of the literature on the site talking about that uh it, the ease of use the ease of installation uh for for the average person you said i think two people can install it in 15 minutes i wanted to kind of dig into that a little further in terms of power consumption, because a lot of times, and I'm sure you've run into this, if you're in a home or an apartment and you run, let's say three window units and somebody decides, oh, I need to use the microwave, you end up Mm -hmm. tripping a circuit. Or if you're running ductless, you have to do sometimes uh, new electrical in your home to um, accommodate that. How did you, how did you and, and, and the company look at those type of scenarios for your unit? Because it's something that does happen fairly frequently. Yeah. It's a real challenge, not just for, like you said, if you've got a couple of these plugged into the wall and you turn on your microwave and you trip a breaker, it's also a challenge at a larger scale because a lot of places, New York City especially, are looking to fully decarbonize their buildings, which means getting rid of all of the the steam boilers and replacing them with electric heat pumps. And doing so, there's not enough electrical capacity to each building, it's going to require massive electrical infrastructure upgrades. And so it's important on the home scale. And then it's going to be important on a larger scale if we're going to fully electrify buildings, which, you know, we strongly believe that we need to. Right. So there's a couple things that, that, <coughs> excuse me, there's a couple things that we do to help that. First is that older window ACs use what's called an induction motor, which there's a huge spike in current when they first turn on. Right. And one of the ways that we make our system quieter and more efficient is we use variable speed motors. Um, the idea of a variable speed motor doesn't sound that advanced because it's not in other sectors, but there are a lot, a lot of compressors in the, in the HVAC industry, which are still single speed and they have that current spike when they first turn on. Yep. So by using a variable speed drive, we already cut out kind of like the peaks of current that our system pulls. Okay. Um, and then next, we've built our system from the start to be networked uh, and uh, Wi-Fi connected because 
if you're going to manage a whole home, eventually we think the future of home electrification is that you'll have an energy management system that decides when to turn on your AC uh, based on, you know, how much energy is coming from your solar panel or based on what other appliances need to run so that you can do management of your energy loads behind your electrical panel that can help prevent trip breakers. Um, and with a combination of these things, we're still going to need to upgrade some electrical infrastructure, but you can help defer that upgrade or get more services without needing to upgrade that. Um, our system, because it's more efficient and because it, it doesn't have that current spike, it, it, it should definitely trip breakers less than any window AC it's replacing. But if you want to use our system for heating too, heating loads are often larger than cooling loads. And yep. so we're doing our best to be able to manage these systems intelligently to prevent that. All right. That, uh, that answers uh, quite, a f- quite a few of my own personal questions. and I'm sure people are going to have <laughs> a few as well. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and jump into what I like to call our hot seat. It's a series of rapid fire questions, some based on you as the individual and some about how you operate as an entrepreneur and a, and a businessman. So I want to kind of run through some of those, get your thoughts on a few things, and then we can go from there. Let's do it. All right. So you wake up in the morning. Uh, what's the first app you go to on your phone? Oh, wow. Good question. This is a boring answer, but it's probably my calendar. Really? What yeah. calendar do what calendar do you use? The default one or do you have your own uh special one? Because everybody's really meticulous with their calendars sometimes. Yeah. I'm boring. It's Google Calendar. It's hey. uh it's the default one. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. So that means you're using a uh an Android device. Oh, sorry. I used to, I just switched to iPhone from Android. Really? Uh, but I still use Google Calendar, so I guess it's not default. Okay. Um what made you switch? Um I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think it's that my girlfriend uses Apple and, and all of the, you know, <laughs> apps and systems yep. just talk better if you use Apple. So I think I think I switched for that. Ah, plus FaceTime, because I'm sure that's important. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that FaceTime became very important in, in, in my house once my daughter was born. So yeah. I, I definitely <laughs> understand that. Yeah. What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone or computer? Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I think it's my bicycle. Really? Yeah. It's not advanced, but it's something that feels like it hasn't changed in so long because it's so dialed in and it's just, it, it's both low tech, but it's just so fun. And, you know, I'm out in California where the weather's always great. And so it's always good to ride. And um, yeah, it's amazing how long how long we've had this thing that is just like so incredibly efficient and fun and just works well. And I I beat the hell out of my bike and it always just works. It's a great what, piece of tech. What bike is that? I got a Surly. I have a Surly uh, Straggler. All right. I'm I'm sure I'm sure you get plenty of those those wonderful views you're riding through. You get that that nice crisp air up there. You do. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's really not fair. You know, growing up in Ohio where the weather is, it's, it's almost never pleasant to be outside and here in California. It's um, yeah, it's almost not fair. It's always, it's always two extremes with Ohio. Either it's, it's super hot or it's like, Hey, we're just going to freeze you out and you're never coming out of your house. Exactly. And sometimes in two adjacent days, it'll be like hot one day and then cold the next day. And it's very unpredictable. Do you listen to music while you work? Often, yeah. Yeah. What's playing? Um, 
I, so I wrote most of my graduate thesis on this one album. And it just like, because of that puts me in such a work mode. I put this album on and I like, my brain just knows that it's time to work and nothing else. And it's Daft Punk's Alive 2007. Nice. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's funny because they did the soundtrack for the second Tron. So yeah. that ends up getting played quite a bit when I'm working. Yeah. So, yeah. It's great working music. Yep. Definitely get that. Uh, what was the last book you read? What was the last book I read? Let's see. Is this a is this a pleasure reading or professional reading? Uh, either or, or both. However, you choose to answer. the The last book I read for personal reasons is is Miss Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. And the last book I read for professional reasons is uh, a book called Never Split the Difference. It's a great book on on negotiating. Yep, that book is uh. Definitely a, a good one to read when you <laughs> when you're learning that. Absolutely, I'm actually I'm actually reading it the second time now because I thought it was so useful. Highly recommend it. There you go. Uh, what's something that you've purchased recently that's less than a hundred dollars that's made your life easier or more enjoyable? Oh, um, let's see. Yeah, I I think that the answer's got to be uh, <laughs> there's this coffee startup called Jot that has like it's basically liquid instant coffee. And, um, I drink a lot of coffee and, uh, it's, it doesn't taste nearly as bad as, as instant coffee. And it's great to, to be able to have a cup of coffee kind of on demand. That's awesome. As, as somebody who's starting to drink more coffee now, as they've gotten a little older, I can, I can respect that quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we talk about the tech, obviously we gotta, we gotta talk some toys. What was your favorite toy or collectible from your childhood? Oh, good question. I, you know what? Loves my, my, uh, NES, my Nintendo. A lot of fun on that. And then I, I think that, uh, I think it's probably tied with that model rocket. Really liked, like, I don't know, setting things off, watching them go up. Both of those were really fun. With, with that said, how do you feel about, um, you know, Tesla's, uh, space ventures? Um, I think that the the idea is is really important. The idea that you use a reusable rocket is kind of like it almost feels obvious at this point. Right. And they they pushed that development forward faster than I, I could have faster than I ever could have imagined NASA doing themselves. On the other hand, you know, it's it's hard to think in terms of long time scales of like humanity's existence and and the idea that we need to colonize Mars because um, we can't be a single planetary species. It might not be wrong in the in the long term, but the fact is that like we got to make our stand here for a very very long time. Yeah, and, it almost feels like it's an exit an exit strategy. Like, ah, eh, we're yeah. just gonna we're just gonna you know piss things away here and then if all if it all goes to hell that we could just hop on yeah. this rocket and leave and i yeah. you, you know i hear that and i i'm in the sh- same boat as you where i feel like technologically that's awesome that we're doing that and and trying to embark on these journeys but i also look exactly at that at the rationale like we really want to embark on that journey to just run away if things go south like yeah in the the time scales that it would take to really have a stable civilization on any other planet are so, so much longer. 
than the scale, the time scale of the global warming challenge that we're facing right now on Earth. Jeez. There you go. And, and don't get me wrong, I want to go to space. I've applied to be an astronaut three times. Really? I will definitely buy a ticket on a private craft of space. I want to go to space. That's awesome. Yeah. How was that like applying applying to, to be an astronaut? Like, what was that process like? It felt like a tiny bit of a pipe dream. Like I, you can kind of like squint and say that my career checks the boxes as some of the things that NASA was looking for, but so many people apply that have just like such incredible resumes. Uh, you, uh, most of them are fighter pilots. I'm not a fighter pilot. And, um, and so I, a little bit knew it was a pipe dream, but I still, I just had to do it. Uh, they, they ask for a pretty extensive application on what you've done, a bunch of references. Um, I don't know. I thought it was fun. My my um my dad and my stepmom both worked for NASA. Um, you know, Glenn Research Center's there in uh Cleveland, Ohio, close to where I grew up. Um I don't know. I, I think it's cool. I love the astronaut program and uh it was uh I think it was a fun experience, even though I knew that my chances were pretty small. Nothing, no harm in dreaming big. That's what that's what exactly. we're all about. Exactly. What's a non-negotiable for you when it comes to business? Hmm. I think the biggest thing for us that's always served us is people need to be focused on what our mission is. I think that it's tough as a startup. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of creative problem solving um, and a lot of focus. And, you know, before I started a startup, I worked for, you know, a couple big companies that would say they had a mission. You're like, why are you doing this? I don't see why this is helpful. But as a startup, I, I see why it's important because it's going to be a long road and it's going to be really hard and it takes a lot of creativity and you've got to send a really clear message to the team of why you're doing things. And so I think that's, it's one of the most important things we look for when we're bringing in new team members, because uh, it often ends up being the most important thing. Like, do you have clear vision for what we're trying to accomplish here as an organization? And are you going to help us move in that direction? No matter what, you know, wrenches get thrown in the works. Gotcha. I think, I think that's important that everybody's kind of rowing the boat in the same direction. I think people kind of lose sight of that sometimes because they're so enamored with resumes and what you bring to the table because of a piece of paper, instead of focusing on the enthusiasm that that person may have to just work on what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's, it really is in like all of the traditional ways that you interview and screen for candidates, it's something that's usually undervalued, right? That kind of ambition and drive and excitement for what you're doing. Cause you can have someone who's really, really technically good at what they're doing. And if they don't have that, they often drag down the people around them. Yep. Um, and, and the ability to lift up, you know, like if you've got four people that you work closely with and you help them all do like 25% better at their jobs, like you doubled your output as a, as a person, right? Like absolutely. That, it, and it's hard to measure for in interviews, but when you find the person who really does like have that kind of like excitement, enthusiasm, and like relentless drive to like, let's do this. It's, it's really, really valuable. What's something you've changed your mind on in the last 12 months? Wow, that's a good question. Hmm. I do think it's important to, to be open to changing your mind always. You know, like we as a company are always testing hypothesis and, and uh, 
if you don't treat things as a hypothesis and make sure you're learning from data, I think you miss opportunities. What's the thing I changed my mind on? Let me think about it. We can always circle back if you wish. Yeah, let's circle back. It's a good question. Um, in growing in growing the business and you know launching a company, what's a, what's a myth that you've pretty much demolished in growing the, your business that other people have told you? Oh, this is how it's going to be. What's something that you were like? Nope, that's not how it went. Um. I'll tell you, I'm going to give an aspirational answer for this one. Please do. Um, We always thought since the start of the company that people don't care about their carbon footprint. And we said, we got to build a product that is uh, gives a better user experience, that has nicer design, because that's really what drives people. And you see it in the data. No one is buying, people almost never buy HVAC systems that are more efficient or better for the climate. And I've always, there's always been in the back of my mind, like maybe there's a reason for this. And it's still like kind of, kind of the company strategy is we need to build better products for them to scale. And it'll always be true to some extent, but more and more, like we're seeing people really realize that the choices that they make is important for future generations. Um, And it's slowly starting to shift. And so it's still not what's driving the price of our product. And I don't think ever will be, but uh, I'm seeing more and more young people engaged in solving this challenge. And I'm seeing more and more people looking up, seeking out solutions to, to, you know, make their homes or in their cities more sustainable. All right. What is something you splurge on when it comes to personal or business development? Um, I really like food. <laughs> I guess that's that personal development, but oh, it is, it is um, because guess what? You need to eat to live. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the one thing that I'm often like, it's usually not, I'm usually not going to the most fancy restaurant in town, but I love traveling to eat different foods. I'll, you know, pay a lot of money for a plane ticket to go somewhere and eat street food. I'm right there with you. I think that people, people don't understand sometimes that food is what brings many people together. You know, I, I always tell people the, uh, you know, you look at a at a ravioli, it's like a ravioli, a pierogi, a dumpling, all culturally different, but all the same. Yep. hundred percent. And people, My, people kind of lose yeah. sight of that. How do you handle failure? You know, I think you've got to learn from it. I think that the most important thing to do is be humble about it. Know that it is part of the process. And that you have to learn from it. You've got to, um, yeah, you, you just got to make sure that you're, that you're learning from it quickly and that you're iterating. It's, it's an important part of the process with any new company. When it comes to business, what's something that brings a smile to your face? I think that it is, I think it's a, for uh, this sounds super cheesy, but I think it's a smile on the customer's face. Nothing wrong with that. I put so much work, so much blood, sweat, and tears into this. Everyone at our company does. And, you know, when you when you see that, like, it is a solution that people have been looking for that makes a difference, it's, it's kind of what we're here for. It's an important step to us accomplishing our mission. And when you see that happen, it, it feels really good. That's a, that's a hell of an answer. Uh, lastly, we always have one last segment, which is Reach One, Teach One. It's our last piece of actionable advice. 
usually centered around business. Um, in this case, you are asked to speak to a group of high school seniors that are going to go off to many of them become engineers. What's one piece of actionable, actionable advice you'd give them based on your own personal experience? That's a great question. I, I think back and it's funny because especially being an entrepreneur, you get a lot of advice. You kind of need to, right? It's, it's part of what I was talking about earlier where you got to call a lot of people for help because there's not always a textbook on, on, on how to do what you're doing. And often that advice is conflicting and that's normal, right? Like people have different experiences. People only have a small set of data points that were involved in their story and their lives. And you got to kind of process that. And um, I think that there's one piece of advice that has always been helpful to me that I would give. And that is that you should be in love with the problem and not the solution. Mm. A lot of entrepreneurs are like, this piece of tech I developed is what's going to fix things and I'm going to find the right application for it. And sometimes that works. That's not entirely wrong, but but it's more important to focus on the problem you're solving and and be willing to let go of your solution and pivot to a better one. Uh, it's It's really important, especially if you're going to try to do something new. That's a hell of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Vince, where can people connect with you, learn more about Gradient, and stay up to date with everything you folks are working on? All the normal ways. So we're um, there's not that many Vince Romanids on the internet, which is a blessing and a curse. So you can find me on LinkedIn. On our website, we've got a link to our Twitter and our Instagram. Uh, and there's also an email address on our website where you can you know shoot us a note if you've got a question. Um, and gradientcomfort.com is our website. You can go there now. You can check out details of our product. You can pre-order. Uh, we're sold out for this summer, but you can pre-order for a fall or or next or, or a spring next year system. Um, and we've also got a blog on there where you can read about kind of our story, some of the things that we care about, some you know interesting facts about the industry. Um, so definitely, definitely checking out our website's good. All right, links for all of that will be in the show notes for this episode. Vince, thank you for taking the time to share the toys and tech of your trade. Rich, if we got one more minute, I have an answer now. All right. Yeah, please. So one thing I've changed my mind on, uh, we always thought that this would only be a consumer product. And this is going to be a little bit of a business answer, but we always thought that this would be a consumer focused product. We would only look at people who are buying window ACs themselves and selling them. And that's continued to be true. But we've seen a lot of business customers, people renovating buildings, people who manage like a, a co-op or something uh, show new interest. And that's one of the things where like we had a hypothesis, we tested it and it started, we started to get data that, you know, said we should shift and, and, you know, we we've got to be open to looking at that data and changing our approach. And so I think there has been a shift in uh, what B2B customers value in terms of uh, how they're decarbonizing their buildings and what services they're providing to residents. So that's one thing I think I was wrong about is I thought this was only a consumer product, but we're seeing a lot of businesses interested in what we're doing. That is outstanding. And I'm glad that we got to circle back and get that answer. Yeah. Once, once again, Vince, thank you for sharing the toys and tech of your trade. Thanks, Rich. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Vince and everything that's going on with Gradient. Uh, definitely make sure to check out the links in the show notes to see what's going on with Gradient and to pre-order your very own unit. 
In addition to that, of course, everything Vince and I talked about will be in the show notes for this episode. Full disclosure, as always, some of those items may contain affiliate links, which if you click, will receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. That helps us out, allowing us to improve our various offerings, whether they're audio, video, or web-based content for you, uh, the end user. So definitely feel free to use those affiliate links. We really, really appreciate it. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, uh, also in the show notes will be the link for the GoFundMe for James from Fatherhood is Lit. Uh, make sure to check that out. And if you can support it, uh, reshare it. If you can't you know, obviously support financially, just signal boosting is huge right now. Every little bit helps to help out James and his family. So please make sure to check out that link in the show notes for this episode. Calls to action, as usual, we'll keep it quick. Uh, feel free to follow RageWorks on any of the social media platforms that you enjoy. We definitely have a presence there. From Pinterest to Instagram to TikTok, RageWorks is there. If you want to follow the RageWorks podcast network itself, you can find it on Twitter at RageWorksNet and also on Instagram at RageWorks Podcast Network. Uh, feel free to check those out. I'm actually running the podcast network social media accounts for the time being. Um, I do have some folks that help me with the other RageWorks accounts, but I am doing a lot of the outreach and management of the stuff for the network. So any DMs, messages, comments, et cetera, that you leave will be responded to by yours truly. So feel free to keep up with that um, if you want to interact with specifically the podcast network. And as I mentioned before, we're always looking for great shows and creators to partner with and work with. So feel free to reach out uh, rich at RageWorks.net. If you want to be a guest or work with us in some capacity, that is the best way to reach us. Of course, links for all of our social and everything else will be in the show notes, as I said before. And of course, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or concerns. And of course, as always, we appreciate any reviews you can leave on any of the podcast platforms that you're consuming this podcast. Every review helps. A lot of people give reviews a bad rap, but I got to tell you, when you have to present to uh, a potential guest or a potential PR person for a guest, you want to have that social proof and reviews are a big part of that. So if you got a second, feel free to leave us a five star review. And of course, if you want to write a little something, we would really, really appreciate it. All right, folks, I'm going to keep it short and sweet, not keep everybody too long. I will see you in two weeks for a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the trade. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next one. Peace.
Toys and Tech of the Trade is part of the RageWorks Podcast Network, your source for rants about gaming, entertainment, and the works. Visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com.